The Care Matters podcast is brought to you by the ESRC Centre for Care and CIRCLE, the Centre for International Research on Care, Labour and Equalities. In this series, our researchers welcome experts in the field and those giving or receiving care to discuss crucial issues in social care as we collectively attempt to make a positive difference to how care is experienced and provided. and welcome to another edition of the Care Matters podcast. I'm Kate Hamblin, the lead for the digital care theme in the Centre for Care and a member of the Impact Implementation Centre's leadership and delivery teams. This episode focuses on a recent House of Lords committee and report. The House of Lords Adult Social Care Committee has been looking into what needs to change to create a fair, resilient and sustainable care system that better enables everyone to live an ordinary life and in doing so have greater choice and control over their lives. In December, the committee published its report, A Gloriously Ordinary Life, Spotlight on Adult Social Care. And today I'm joined by the chair of that committee, Baroness Andrews. Baroness Andrews was the government whip and spokesperson for the House of Lords for Health, Work and Pensions and Education and Skills from 2003 to 2005, before becoming the Parliamentary Undersecretary of the State of the Department of Communities and Local Government from 2005 to 2009. She then moved from 2009 to 2013 to be the Chair of English Heritage. Welcome Baroness Andrews. Thank you so much Kate. It's very good to be here. I'm very happy to take part in such a useful podcast. Thank you. Um, I found the the report really fascinating and I was, uh, full disclosure, (laughs) asked to give evidence at the inquiry. But would you mind maybe telling the listeners first a bit more about the inquiry and its origins? Mm, Certainly. I'm so glad you gave it its full title because A Gloriously Ordinary Life uh, was a title that was suggested to us by one of the people that we took evidence from. And it sort of sums up actually what it was that we eventually uh, wanted to say in very succinct language. Um, It was a short select committee inquiry. Um, We have two types. One set of select committees run for three years or more, more or less permanent. And then there are a series of ad hoc committees which we volunteer and offer up as subjects which are very appropriate for a shorter inquiry and which cross different areas of policy. And because agro-social care is such a key issue at the moment, it's such a contentious issue, such an important area of policy, um, one of the members of the House of Lords, Lord Laming, suggested that we looked at adult social care. But we all agreed um, once the committee had been appointed, and I should say we came from all parts of the House, every party, we had a bishop, Bishop James of Carlisle, we had crossbenches as well. Um, We all agreed that it was an enormous topic, a very, very well trampled over topic, and we should find something which nobody had really focused on. And so the original focus of our inquiry was to be on unpaid care, because the whole set of issues around unpaid care, care in the home, are relatively invisible. It's very, very hard to grasp because the data isn't there. And these millions of people, and the number does vary, you know, between, you know, five million and and, and above, 
these are the people who really are the backbone of the system, without which the whole adult care set of provisions simply wouldn't work. And in um, deciding to do that, of course, what we realized very quickly was you couldn't talk about unpaid carers without talking about the whole set of issues around disability and and growing older and um, dementia and all these issues which are associated with care. The people who receive care and the people who provide care in the home are two sides of the same coin. And so the, to my great joy, to be honest, actually, we found ourselves in the middle of an inquiry where we were looking at both the whole range of issues around um, uh, chronic disability, you know, adults, uh, chronic disability, and so on, young adults, working adults, older people, all these issues which raise the cru crucial question you've already raised is uh, how do people get to choose what's on offer and how do they get to choose the best for themselves? And, and so it was a very satisfying, um, coherent committee. Um, we, and we finished last, we had a year, we took advice from Andrew Dillnott as well. And he said to us, and it was very striking, and we followed his advice, that one of the problems about adult social care in its whole is it's invisible. I mean, we all know now about care homes. COVID made that such an incredibly important and dramatic and awful issue. But the rest of adult social care is relatively invisible unless you're in it, unless you come up against it. You know, and that what is what makes it so difficult to create a visible policy for it in a way. So those were all some of the issues which we wrestled with. And when we published our um, report in December, on time, of course, um, we had to um, we had to wait for people's judgment. And I'm very pleased to say that the report has been well received. It's seen as optimistic positive, a new positive approach to adult social care, seeing it for the huge, huge benefit it is to us all, um, and with some good practical recommendations. No, absolutely. And I think the thing that really struck me that, it, you know, you did it in a year, but the, 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 the sheer range of people you spoke to, with, you know, so much lived experience in there, so much people um, with, with practice experience, academics, just a huge number of voices in there and it seems like there was a very reflexive process of expanding that focus away from okay we can't just look at unpaid carers we need to take a whole systems approach to this mm. it's really interesting and I think another thing that struck me was the sort of the foregrounding of care will affect us all this isn't a, a peripheral issue it, it is you know it's invisible but it's mm. so common in all it will be incredible you know increasingly common as we age so we can't keep ignoring it mm. I think was really the things that struck me well thank you for saying that because you're absolutely right I mean um just on the invisibility point of course you know we explore the reasons why it is invisible and of course it's historically invisible it's never in the heroic settlement of the welfare state in 1945 because the demography was so different the expectations around what women did so different. People didn't live as long, especially people with disabilities. We weren't planning for an aging society in 1945, you know. Um, and consequently, nobody then actually caught up with the issue. And we've known about aging as hardly a surprise. 
but we've still not actually thought about the implications. And this is one of the implications, of course. And um, one of the issues that we we addressed, you know, we couldn't address it thoroughly, but we raised it, was that we have a million people already aging like children, and it would be two million in 10 years. But in terms of the range of voices, what we wanted to do, we wanted this to be a different experience for everybody. And we decided that we would co-produce it with as many people as possible. And it was possible because it's such an interactive issue. And if you don't listen, if you don't take account, then no point in doing this sort of inquiry, frankly. So we had two experts advising us, one an expert by experience and a separate. And the, another one, John Glasby, who's a well-known academic. So between them, they kept us completely on the right track. And of course, they brought their contacts and their knowledge as well, um, and their perspectives. And we, what we tried to do was to get as many people as possible um, in conversation. And these included a lot of people who were receiving care. We had some fantastic witnesses who told us how you know, how fearful they were every time they had to go back to social services and say, you know, am I, you know, is this something I could get or I know, do I need a review? And thinking you might end up getting less. Um, and then, of course, we talked to carers and that was, it was quite difficult sometimes. It was, these were public sessions. And I found myself listening to carers who would be caring for um, elderly parents with chronic conditions, sometimes dementia. Um, disabled young adult children who were really, really, you know, well-loved and well-respected, but still really challenging in the home. And some people caring for two generations at the same time. And I used to listen, we all used to listen to these extraordinary women and men. And at the end of whatever question we'd asked, I would find myself, you know, I, I don't think I can go on with these questions, you know, it's not intrusive, it's just what we're hearing is so powerful, it's so intimate, and it's so revealing of the day-to-day struggles. I wouldn't be able to do this. And and so that sense of co-production, of listening respectfully and closely to so many different voices, and then, of course, we had all the brilliant people who run the agencies, many of whom themselves are expert by experience. They've been carers or they are disabled in in different ways. Um, We took uh, evidence from senior officials at the DH um, who who were very good, doing their very best. We took uh, advice from the ADSS. We took a lot of advice from local authorities who were doing brilliant things like Somerset, Wigan, and and that's in the report because there is some brilliant practice which frankly could be shared much, much more widely. Um, we took evidence from other countries, not enough because we didn't have time. I would love to have talked to people in Australia, in Holland um, and so on. But we had this great expert from uh, Sweden who had been very in, important in the uh, independent living movement. And we crammed in as many people as possible, um, you know, into these two-hour sessions over the year. The report really speaks to that. And some of the key words that were coming up as I was reading it were fight and the fear oh. around reassessment. But also mm-hmm. the thing that I found really uh, valuable was the sort of pushback on the family first and families should do more. 
Partly because, as you say, there is this growing number of people who are growing up, who are growing older without children, but also pushing back on those sort of slightly yeah. old-fashioned, archaic values, which I think also contribute to the invisibility of care, that it's a private matter for families to deal with sure. women. And it's that's... that's but they weren't complaining, you know. No. Actually, they really weren't. These were... These were, you know, people who have enormous dignity who said things like, you know, I've learned so lot and I wouldn't be without my disabled child. I, you know, I love my parents. As a, I'm proud to do this. There was, there was no complaint about the relationship. They complained about having been called carers many times and their right to be such, in a way, such an exclusive role. And people are not just carers, they're carers and mothers or carers and children you know and it's a really clunky thing but it's that's what gets you into the benefits um system as it was so i that's something we should really try to change but the 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 families by and large actually you know so it yes of course it is a duty and there's nobody else but you know there is huge joy in it as well and um i mean the complaints such as they were with the with the system I think that there was a really interesting bit where you where the report sort of lays out like we're using the language of carers, but we acknowledge that mm-hmm. it is it is a problematic, mm-hmm. difficult term, and often people don't um, identify with it, and that leads to a sort of right. a measurement problem that we have. I mean, one of the things going back to the issue of who we ask to give uh, give uh, evidence, you know. There are many people who we would love to have spoken to, GPs who are doing really important work in referrals and creating simple pathways, you know, into the care um, uh, arrangements and so on. People who are, you know, in the private sector who are doing really interesting things. And many people have been in touch with me since. And that's been a, a real revelation because there are, is an awful lot of good practice out there. And people who are really trying to improve on and make some universal differences, you know. Um, It's a question of finding a way into, uh, because the system is so fragmented, because it's a local delivery system, all the best practice is fairly local. And that's what the challenge is, of course. How do you actually make the best universal? I think, yeah, that's definitely something we're, we're wrestling with, with the impact, impact mm-hmm. implementation centre, how you scale and spread practice that might be quite bound within specific local context. How do you transfer mm-hmm. that and, and, and capture what makes it work to another completely different local authority or local area? It is that challenge, I think. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the title, because I think one of the things the report really does, and the inquiry is clearly done, is to to sort of go back to first principles and think what is adult social care for and the idea that it's about decline and crisis and mm-hmm. you know, managing people when they're very, they're, they're very you know, mm-hmm. um, most desperate and it's pushing back on that. And I just wanted mm-hmm. you to maybe explain where that, that, that title mm-hmm. came from. Well, as I said, I think it came from social care futures, actually. Um, because what we were impressed by, I mean, it is so depressing to be faced with a litany of failure and you know not least actually because you're trying to recruit good people into this workforce why would they want to join a failing institution and part of the the problem of invisibility is you can't easily construct a narrative because it's not 
grasp of both of them. But it was so obvious to us, and so much of what we heard, especially from, you know, people like Social Care Future and many others, the Centers for Excellence and so on, and individuals. And of course, it's instinctive to us. We want to be optimistic. We've got a health service that's visible, and despite all its, its challenges, we're very proud of. And the um, pandemic revealed the fundamental importance of social care, residential care, if you didn't understand that already. But what adult social care offers, and what this report is about, is not a service which is there to prop up the health service. It's a service which we should be able to rely on, to be confident about, to have a sense of entitlement about, because when we need it, it will listen to us and it will try to offer us what we want to continue the lives that give us the greatest pleasure and effect. And the title, A Gloriously Ordinary Life, says it all for me. And when I was in the, uh, on Tuesday, when I was uh, at the launch of the Archbishop's Commission on um, Reimagining Social Care, the term they use is a full life, the fullness of life. And they had a video which included two phenomenal uh, ladies, uh, both severely disabled, who described in their terms what it meant to have a gloriously ordinary life, like birthday parties, you know, like going shopping, you know, like feeling that there were things in the course of their day it didn't matter at all, actually, that they were, as they were. These were things they wanted to do, and people wanted them to be able to do. And so, and it comes into the co-production argument, of course. And at the moment, you know, the adult social care service is so strapped that what it can offer is the minimum, quite often, to keep people safe in their homes, to keep them, you know, oh, um, stabilize them in terms of their, their health conditions and so on and so forth. It can't help them to reach the ambition of being as their best selves as they remember themselves, as they want to continue to be. I think one of the, the recommendations is, is around sort of returning to the CARE Act, where mm. you know, well-being is at its core, and that speaks to this centering of the person and what they think would enable them to, to have that well-being which you know is about having an ordinary life and it's not about just managing risk and managing conditions and getting people out of hospital as quickly as possible it, it's it's there in legislation it's just well not... you see that is what is so frustrating about all this because you know there's a litany of failed promises and um you know i'm arguing constantly outside this report, that this report makes the case for a positive, creative, um, ambitious vision for social care, which is what it should be. It shouldn't be something that we're fearful to engage with or despair about having to use as a last resort. It should be a welcome first resort because we know it's there to help and it will help us as best it and we can together. The Care Act more or less says that. It doesn't use the term for production. And it doesn't use the term invisible or anything like that. But it is about well-being. It's about autonomy. 
independent living and all these things. But because, not entirely because of funding, a failure of will and a lot of that act has been swamped by the urgency of other things. You know, we could mention a lot of other things that have gone on since 2014, couldn't we? But the point is that hasn't been implemented and it needs to be. And it, we don't need lots of new legislation. We really do. I think we need to revisit the act and probably the guidance more critically now because we know more now. Um, and we're a bit more aware of the, the frailty of the system. But my goodness, it's a good it's a good piece of legislation. Yes, thank you. And I think that that that's a kind of key recommendations. Are there other recommendations you'd want to highlight as being what what's the key things that we need to do next, really? Well, there are a lot of recommendations, and I have to say we we thought hard about how many recommendations we we ought to put. In the end, we just said what we thought needed to be done. One recommendation which addresses the invisibility point. And it may sound like an easy recommendation, but it's not. It's actually having someone to act as an advocate and an agent of change for the whole sector. And we've recommended a commissioner for care and support. Now, this would be someone modelled a combination like on the children's commissioner and the old person's commissioner in Wales, who oh, got some teeth you know, who can actually challenge and point to and rage about um, awful practice, who can act as the voice of, you know, the, of, of the people who work in the system um, and the people who receive the care. Now, it's an, it would be an enormous job if you tried to do everything. And you don't, you just actually need to have somebody there and to write a job description which is practicable and which fills the really big gap which there is nobody there and nothing there at the moment. So that's one recommendation and I actually think that ought to be one of the first things to be done. Um, the second thing is very obvious actually and we do need a workforce plan. And there are lots of groups working on the possibilities of workforce plans frankly. And they really are. We need to audit and respect and enhance the skills of the care workforce, as long as they're considered unskilled and as long as they're considered to be, we can pay them less than the minimum wage. We're never going to have that sustainable, resilient care workforce that we need. So we really need to rethink um, uh, how we employ um, and, and train and sustain and retain people. Another thing, actually, that is um, urgent, I think, is to tackle the tackle what we do not know. And one of the things, and again, this is about invisibility, is the absence of data. And so many things, actually, we just simply did not. We could not answer because the data wasn't there. And um, we don't really know. I mean, we've had new, you know, new numbers, for example, the number of carers and so on. So we need a centralized, oh, God, I hate the term. We need, some, we, we need somebody like maybe the care at your center to bring together what we do know, to identify and map the gaps in our knowledge and our research base, to actually work out who's doing what where, and what needs to be filled in? For example, I said that there are about um, 
another million people would be aging without children by in the next 10 years. But we don't know. We only collect data on women. We don't know how many of those will be men. Um, we don't know, for example, what the typical care package costs. Andrew, can I let me read you something? Andrew Zunoff put it, if I can find it quickly. Andrew uh, described the problem very well. He said, basically, it was um, like being in a shop. Here we go. Needing social care at the moment is a bit like being in a shop with no prices. You know how much the care for your partner or parent will cost per week or month, but you have no idea how many weeks or months their need will go on. So you simply do not know what the bill is. Now, that's one form of lack of data. And that's very, very important because that's personal. That's about how much it costs us. But, you know, all across the patch, there are gaps. So that's another thing. But, you know, when we were talking about, sorry, I mean, I'm going through all the recommendations now. Um, <laughs> when we were talking about unpaid carers and the things that need to be done urgently, we need to honour the promises that were made by successive governments to unpaid carers. Carers leave. Well, where's that, for goodness sake? Where's the, where are those five days? Carers leave. And where's the plan for respite? Where do we... How do we work more closely with employers and require them actually to provide carers? So that's and, the, and then the carers benefit. Carers benefit the lowest of all benefits with high barriers in terms of, of working hours to claim it. We need to revisit and address that because if you can pay carers uh, a, a, a little more, not only actually do you keep them you know, in better health, frankly, they can get some decent food and some rest. And that helps everybody, it helps the whole service. You know, but it's their right and dignity to that. And it puts a value on these invaluable services. So that's another, you know, another sort of set of recommendations around that. Um, and then um, when we come on to the, the narrative, the bigger picture, I just want our politicians, and in fact, I would like, and the, the National Care Convention, the archbishops have come up with, and everybody in the field to start talking about the gloriously obvious possibilities of adult social care, what it does. One of the people that we didn't take evidence from, so we couldn't quote him officially, said the difference between the health service and adult social care is that the health service saved my life and adult social care has enabled me to live it. And I think that is a fabulous description. And I think, you know, we, and, God, and I'm not saying we don't acknowledge the impossibilities, the difficult situations, we let it in our face day in, day out. In East Sussex, for example, some friends of mine have just been told they need to, they'll have to wait 19 weeks to get care and support. You know, it's, it, and this is somebody in pain, real pain, needs real help. Um, but what we can say is that above and beyond this, there is a goal that we should be reaching for. And that, and I think that is about telling this biggest, biggest story and raising, raising our spirits and making it a national imperative. 
And finally, and I haven't, I want to address, I mean, there's housing. We, God knows we need to do something urgent about aging in place so people can go back to their homes. They don't linger in hospital. Their homes are safe. They're warm. They're not going to fall down the steps. You know, they're not going to electrocute themselves with faulty wiring. They need, we need a housing policy which is geared to an aging society. And that's market housing, extra care housing. It's the whole range of housing options that, that are within reach. I mean, the developers could do it tomorrow. They really could. All that new housing could be done to lifetime home standards without any difficulty. And they should be mandatory. And we've always said this. So there's a lot of issues around housing. And inescapably, there's the issue around funding. Because, frankly, you know, the health service costs 156 billion a year and adult social care 17 billion. And if we only had what has been asked, you know, and estimates vary between about 6 billion a year and, and more, um, you know, uh, extra a year, the cost of the health service would come down. So, th I mean, th those are, I mean, there are other, other recommendations. I think those are, you know, some of the key ones. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of, them that are underpinned by the commitment to co-production as well so yeah yeah I mean that is at the heart of the design because co-production is you know it goes from me as a disabled person say working with my care provider to say I would like to be able to go go here on a Wednesday can you arrange for me to can you do some uh, you know, um, some open university programs or something, you know, can, it's not just a question of, you know, when will the carer come in? And then it goes from that to the systemic implementation of policy, which is geared around that conversation around joint goals. And places like Wigan and Somerset, you know, have done this. And they've done it because they could see that it was, the best way of maximizing, of optimizing their resources, not least, and ensuring that people actually were satisfied with the service. And then actually, you know, frankly, it's a prevention mechanism as well. It's a really good, Wigan's a really good example. Obviously, it is about Wigan, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be about other places if you make those adjustments. Somerset has got micro-community development, huge amount about community development in, in our report of course the community assets community strengths and capacity which can be built up not that expensively let the local authorities do what they do best which is create this agency within the community um, and the voluntary sectors are absolutely essential and they are so creative so nimble um, and i speak as someone who spent a lot of time in the voluntary sector uh, so there's a lot about that and about co-production in that sense. And of course, then you come on to another form of, of co-production in terms of independent living and the ability to, to choose who does your care. Now, you may choose your family and many, many, many people would. You may choose some friends or neighbours. But you might choose a personal assistant. And increasingly, actually, I think we need to make that choice more realistic. And at the moment, it's, it's beyond the reach of so many people because there are so few and they, they are, uh, you know, they can't afford to, to stay as a personal assistant. 
And we talked to one lady who didn't do 27, no, in fact, would employed over the course of a year, 27 different personal assistants, all of whom in the end had found it's, um, they couldn't survive on the, on the money. And of course, if you're dealing with a personal assistant, you become a small business. You have to know about health and safety, national insurance and everything else. And it's too much for, too much for people. Yeah, that that's that's really yeah interesting, and and we've been in as part of impact, we've been doing stuff around choice and control for people, and you know there there are the policy mechanisms that sit in between direct payments and commission services, but the take up is so low because again the sort of acknowledgement that there will be an administrative <laughs> burden placed on someone to 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 manage an individual service fund, for example, isn't factored in to any of the costs. That's right, or, that's right. and or, it costs. It's, it's cost emotionally, yeah. you know, it's, it's very taxing. Yeah, there isn't that sort of acknowledgement that there is <laughs> an additional, that, you know, there, there, there's a benefit, but there's also a cost there that, that someone has to weigh up whether they can take that on. And if 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 ultimately the churn of PAs they're having is, is not sustainable, then... Yeah. But it goes back, Katie, to the earlier question you asked me about, you know, well, family first? Well, yeah, I mean, if, you know, we take... It has read that family will be first, but not just these people actually who don't have children, whose children like mine live the other side of the world, but people who don't want to ask that of their families, who don't feel they should be required to, who don't feel they should put the pressure on them to step in because there's no other choice. And families who do that willingly, but not knowing how long it's going to last and what the choice are. And we, some of our witnesses told us, you know, they gave up academic jobs, very high level professional jobs. And years later, they were caring for more than one of their family. And, and they, they didn't say it with bitterness, you know, because that was a choice they made, but it was not a choice they should have had to make. You know, when we talk to guys, I think one of the things that struck me, it always struck me actually, um, is how modest carers' expectations are. How modestly, what they ask for is so modest, and yet we ask so much of them. Absolutely, and and it's a sort of short-termism, I think, in the way that, you know, family first, but that will have a knock-on effect to pensions and, you know, there's there's creating depend other dependencies in, in within that system that and you know that we've done um within the center for care and sustainable care work around the financial implications for carers the health and well-being implications for carers so yes they're taking on care that could be or, or might be taken on by the adult social care system otherwise but they themselves are more likely to then draw on other forms of support mm-hmm. because because caring is 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 hard, and if you've had to give up work, then yes, you financially are going to struggle. And you know, there's this sort of very small and short term approach to it, almost by by policy. Mm. Well, thank you. That um, what I wanted to now understand is what happens next, because obviously this is the start of something, not the end of something. Well, indeed, indeed it is. I mean, and, and I've been, we've all been. I mean, I've been talking on behalf of the committee, and this was not a solo you know, effort. There were 12 of us involved. And we've all been very pleased at the response and the fact that we seem to have struck a chord and we seem to have 
been saying something new in a field where there's an awful lot of voices. So what we do now is, frankly, campaign on the basis of what we discovered. You can't leave this. This is far too important. So, for example, we are waiting for a government response to our report. We will have a debate in this house. We asked questions, asked a question yesterday about the budget and where, where adult social care would fit. I've been engaged in correspondence with the Chancellor, who chair the Health and Social Care Select Committee, was a passionate advocate for adult social care. Uh, we're trying to sort of understand where the money, the new money he promised in the autumn is actually going to go and where we will see it. We will um, try, to, obviously, to influence the political parties in the run-up to the election. I hope we'll be here for people who want to give us more information. I'm, you know, I'm in the business of listening to any good ideas now and trying to do what I can to join people up and so on and so forth. Um, it's unusual, in a way, for a committee to have a sort of shadow life after it's finished its work officially. But I think all of us feel, actually, that this is one of the great issues of our time. I think ageing, dem demographic change, ageing and climate change are the great issues of our time. And this belongs in that whole set of issues. And of course, it impacts on climate change as well. So that's basically, it's a, it's a personal our ambition, but um, it is shared with a lot of people. Absolutely, and certainly one that the Centre for Care and Impact also share with you as well. Thank you so much for your time, Baroness Andrews. Thank you for, for speaking to us, and I would urge any listeners who've, who've maybe got a flavour of the report to actually go and read it cover to cover. It's just the wealth of experience in there, the wealth of um, interesting practice is, is really fascinating as, and, and all builds to those um, really concrete recommendations. But thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a huge privilege and I really, it's been an opportunity for me to think aloud again about what we did and that in itself is really refreshing and energising. Thank you. <laughs>